Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be talking about the subject of the Southern Baptist Convention and specifically the president of the SBC. As you well know, the presidency of the SBC is a very important position that's elected annually at the annual meeting of the SBC. And according to the bylaws of the SBC, that specific individual can hold two terms, but he has to be elected in both of those uh, individual annual meetings. So if he's elected one year, he would have to be elected to continue to serve in that office the following year, but he's limited to two terms. This specific position is very important because it will uh, help chart the course of the SBC. It will help set the agenda uh, for how we serve together in various different ministry capacities, but it also involves specific uh, political appointments to various entities and various leadership positions, both uh, in the North American Mission Board, the International Mission Board, as well as trustee boards of various seminaries that make up the SBC. And so as we think about this specific position, it's an important position, and we need to take seriously who it is that we vote for as president. Today's special guest is Pastor Mike Stone of Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia. Georgia Baptists know you, Mike, because of your long tenure at Emanuel and also because of your involvement in many aspects of Baptist life on both a state and national level. Take just a moment to introduce yourself to the G3 audience and tell us a little more about yourself and your family. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, actually in a Pentecostal denomination, which becomes a real part of my faith story and where I stand doctrinally on a lot of issues. Uh, I came to Christ when I was eight years old, and by the time I was in high school, I really began from my own personal Bible study to see some distinctions with my uh, my boyhood church on issues of the sufficiency of Scripture and the very nature of salvation. So after high school, my parents allowed me to begin seeking out a ch- church of my own uh, conviction. And after uh, uh, a number of months looking around at different churches in Valdosta, Georgia, where I was raised and graduated high school and would later attend college, uh, I I selected a Southern Baptist church because of doctrinal uh, biblical conviction. And uh, after graduating from Valdosta State, I had sensed a vocational call of God on my life. I enrolled in law school at Mercer University, thinking God was calling me to be an attorney and maybe leverage that occupation uh, for the causes of of the gospel. Uh, But while I was in law school, the Lord just really confirmed in my heart vocational church ministry was his calling on my life. So I I withdrew from law school and uh, within a few months was serving on staff at a church in Macon, Georgia. That was in 1994. So I've been in full-time vocational ministry for 27 years. It was at that church in Georgia that I met my wife. That was her childhood church. And so she was, uh, she and her family were attending that church. And I would later go on staff there. We would be married. And around 25 years ago, soon be 25 years ago, the Lord called us to uh, Emmanuel Baptist here in Southeast Georgia, the city of Blackshear. And I first came as the minister of music and served in that position for about five and a half years and will soon celebrate my 19th anniversary as a senior pastor. Uh, My wife and I were blessed. We have been blessed with four children. We had about a seven-year struggle with infertility. Many members of your uh, listening audience will kind of relate to that. Uh, We adopted two children at birth, and then after a few years, the Lord gave us two miraculous surprises, and my wife was uh, blessed to bear uh, our two younger children. Uh, But the, the church here has really prospered just through strong 
uh, steady focus on biblical evangelism and biblical exposition of Scripture. We're in a city of about 4,000 people, and yet God has really blessed the ministry here. That kind of gives you, uh, you get noticed by people in various places of leadership. And so what God has done here at Emmanuel has really afforded me some opportunities to serve uh, in our local association, as well as in Georgia Baptist Life, serving as chairman of our state executive committee, president of the Georgia Baptist Convention in 2017 and 2018, and uh, then later to serve as chairman of the SBC Executive Committee. And um, uh, my wife has been very supportive of all of that and um, just very grateful for her role in her ministry in my life as well. Mike, you've made it clear that you're going to be running for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2021. And I want to ask, what exactly qualifies you for this leadership office within the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, Josh, one of the things that I've been focusing on is that I I believe I'm an organizational insider, but a relational outsider. What I mean by that as an organizational insider, obviously serving as EC chairman and president of the second largest state convention in the SBC, that's Georgia is usually uh, second right behind the state of Alabama in terms of cooperative program giving and some other statistical measurements. So I've served in key positions inside the second largest state convention in the SBC, and was chairman of the national board for two years. In fact, I'm the immediate past chairman of the SBC executive committee. So I have organizational inside knowledge. I know what the governing documents say, how things work. I've also uh, been able to see up close and personal what some of the current real-time challenges and opportunities are. So that's kind of the organizational insider part. But I think it's equally important that I'm a relational outsider. And by that, I mean, I have not, um, well, here in South Georgia, we use the phrase run with, uh, kind of who your friends are. And who your friends are is not a character uh, statement. Uh, Your friends are who they are. But if you look at recent leadership across the SBC, there there tends to be a lot of uh, re- Uh, renominating. There tends to be a lot of this one nominates this one who nominates the other. And there's a very small group uh, who provide the overwhelming majority of leadership in the SBC. The other thing that I would really highlight is that I am first and foremost in ministry. I'm a husband, a father, and a local church pastor. Uh, The SBC, you'd have to go back 30 years or more to find a, a an SBC president, who pastors a more normative type of church. And I don't say that to disparage any pastor uh, who's been SBC president who pastors a what we call a mega church. But Emmanuel is not a small church, but we're a more normative church. And I believe that I would bring that day-to-day pastoral insight uh, to be an encouragement to pastors and uh, staff and lay people across the SBC. The cooperative program is an important issue for many members of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's actually important for the functionality of the convention of churches that partner together for various uh, ministry aspects, including both education and church planting. How important is the CP to you personally, and how do you see your leadership impacting the CP giving? Well, the cooperative program is a way that we give through, not to, but Rightly understood, it's a way that we give through the ministries of the Southern Baptist Convention to to fund and fuel all of our cooperative missions efforts, whether that's seminary education, um, uh, just the, the funding of missionaries here in the United States and around the world. Emmanuel has a 
a history of being a strong cooperative program church. In fact, the 25 years that I've served here in this church, we average just over 9% of undesignated receipts. And uh, during my ministry here, we've given over $2.5 million, and that's quite a statement for a church that's a small town, really middle middle income, blue collar church. If you look at the cooperative program support of many of our national leaders, quite frankly, some of them, the first time that they've ever really begun promoting the cooperative program is when they have spent a good portion of their ministry in the local church, and then they they take an entity position where they're on the cooperative program payroll. Then they suddenly become interested in the cooperative program. I think that I would bring a credibility uh, to the cooperative program issue to challenge churches to give generously and sacrificially uh, through the through the work of the cooperative program. The SBC is a large group of churches who partner together for both theological education and gospel mission. As you look at the SBC today, what are the top three things that you would like to accomplish if you're elected as president? Well, the first thing that I would focus on, and these are in no particular order because I would say that all three of these are really high-level issues, but if there was one that stood out above the other two, it would be to, to refocus our attention on evangelism. Part of the problem that we have had in the more recent history of the SBC, Josh, we've started calling everything a gospel issue, and the word gospel has become more of an adjective than a noun describing a body of theological truth. And when everything is a gospel issue, nothing is a gospel issue. And I I believe that the gospel is the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sin, buried in a borrowed grave, bodily rose from the dead, and that if men and women, boys and girls, will repent and believe, they can be saved. I'd love to call our focus and our attention back to that as the primary reason that the Southern Baptist Convention even exists. The founders of the SBC called it our one sacred effort. It was the propagation of the gospel. That obviously is the Great Commission. It's the mandate of the Lord Jesus that is given uh, to churches and to individual believers. But I also believe that that's the key uh, to bring about unity uh, that seems to be so evasive in the life of the SBC. So if I were elected as president, one of the things that I would like to do is to call the SBC and each of its churches to a wave revival, just a period of time where we're calling churches to have some very specific targeted uh, evangelism. Now, obviously, any emphasis like that would have to be customizable uh, to the 47,000-plus autonomous churches of the SBC so that you know churches, based on their schedule, their, uh, their approach to evangelism, their own soteriological uh, uh, convictions and, and beliefs, that we would just have a period of time where we are focusing on on reaching those who are lost. So the first thing that I would prayerfully uh, seek to accomplish would be a refocus on the issue of evangelism. The second is to champion the sufficiency of Scripture. I think that most of the people in the SBC would verbally attest to their belief that the Scriptures are sufficient, but yet we see some theories and ideologies, some have called them analytical tools like critical race theory and intersectionality that are infecting uh, the the stream of thought in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, And I believe that these things are contra- the scripture. They are in uh, contradiction to the scripture, so you can't mix things like CRT, intersectionality, 
while simultaneously saying that you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I would use the the pulpit, if you please, of the SBC presidency to champion the fact that we need to we need to focus on the sufficiency of Scripture with our actions, and by that I'm, I mean our hiring practices, who we allow to teach, what we allow them to teach. That we should we should champion the sufficiency of Scripture with our actions as well as we do with our our verbal statements as well as our written statements. So I would I would champion the sufficiency of Scripture. Try to focus on the issue of evangelism, and the third item is just to seek to foster greater involvement from grassroots Southern Baptists. As I've already indicated, I think that there's a lot of power, influence, and authority in the SBC that has been vested over time in a smaller and smaller group of people, and um, You'd be hard-pressed, Josh, to get 9,000, 10,000 messengers to an annual meeting uh, with, depending on how you count the math, north of 14, 14 and a half million Southern Baptists. So a very small percentage actually go to the annual meetings. And this is how you can get things like Resolution 9 and uh, uh, statements and decisions coming out of our annual meetings that I personally do not think represent rank-and-file Southern Baptists. So I, I just want to do some things to help foster greater involvement from uh, what I would call grassroots Southern Baptists to be more involved, more engaged, more invested in the cooperative mission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mike, it is no secret that social justice is a hot topic that's presently creating division within the SBC. In 2018, I was part of a group who organized and published the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. What we were seeing was a massive problem of uh, people using hot topic issues from a political lens to impact evangelical circles, both entities and uh, denominations and institutions that we love. And while we believe that justice is something that we should care about and engage in uh, as Christians, and that racism is a real sin that we see and that we experience even in our present day, there's also an agenda to use these hot topics for political motivation. And we could see this, and we wanted to spotlight this problem within evangelicalism. And when we published the statement on social justice in the gospel, we were told that there is no such thing as a social justice agenda within the SBC or within evangelicalism. But moving beyond 2018 into 2019 in Birmingham, Alabama, the Southern Baptist Convention was presented with a, a list of resolutions, and one of those resolutions was Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, suggesting that we should use those ideologies as analytical tools for gospel ministry. And so as we continued to see this agenda play its way out in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention and within the broader evangelical groups, we could see a massive disconnect between the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, and these political and analytical tools of our culture. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. First, did you sign the statement on social justice and the gospel? Josh, I did not sign that statement because it has been my personal practice uh, to not sign statements of that nature. There are many statements, the Nashville statement, uh, the a statement on social justice and the gospel that I would wholeheartedly affirm and don't mind going on record in my pulpit, in personal conversations, as well as informal uh, discussions that are going to be publicized, such as this one. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree 
with the statement on social justice and the gospel. It has just been my personal practice as a local church pastor uh, to not sign such statements. Well, perhaps we can convince you to go ahead and sign the statement on social justice and the gospel. (laughs) Many have tried through the years. I will also say this, uh, with many of the statements that come out from time to time, my, my family and friends would attest that the statement on social justice and the gospel challenged my practice on that as much as any uh, in the past, simply because I not only agree with it, but I, I embrace and understand the timeliness of it, that we speak with clarity and precision uh, into, into matters such as this one. Specifically regarding Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, do you believe that it is necessary or even appropriate for the leadership of the SBC to place before the convention a resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools for gospel ministry, or do you believe that the Bible is sufficient alone? So is this a sufficiency of Scripture issue? Uh, Absolutely. I believe the Word of God is completely and totally sufficient. And the problem that is... uh, that, that I see with critical race theory and intersectionality. And I want to make a, I want to make a very important distinction because uh, some of the people who criticize the position that I hold, which I believe is the same position that you hold on this issue, they accuse us of regularly using tools and resources outside of the Bible in gospel proclamation, sermon preparation, etc. So the problem with critical race theory and intersectionality is not merely that they are extra biblical, I confess I use extra-biblical tools regularly, whether that's something studying the archaeology around a particular uh, historical narrative in the Old Testament, if I'm using a commentary, availing myself perhaps of sermon materials and other resources, maybe that other great faithful men of God have preached down through the years on the text uh, that I'm preparing for that coming Lord's Day. The problem with these tools is is not that they're extra-biblical, but they are unbiblical. They, they put together systems and structures and divide humanity in ways that the Word of God does not. Um, now, I know this is a very broad uh, statement. I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds of it, but I would just simply say CRT and intersectionality, uh, they misdiagnose the remedy because they misdiagnose the problem. They think the problem in the world is power structure and privilege, but the problem in the world is the reality of sin that we're all members of Adam's race, and we're born into this world with a depraved nature that is bent against God, and only the power of the Holy Spirit through the regeneration that comes when we hear and receive and embrace the gospel, that's the only remedy. But critical race theory and intersectionality, they define guilt and innocence on the base of identity, whether that's uh, gender identity, ethnic identity, economic identity. And Josh, one of the one of the real problems that I see with that is that when guilt or innocence is based on identity, which to a large degree is immutable. I mean, uh, uh, I I was born male. I was conceived as a male, born as a male, lived my life as a male, and I will always be a male because that's what God created me to be. That's an immutable characteristic. And if I'm guilty of something because I'm a male, then uh, I could repent of that. Uh, I could go on some perpetual repentance and apology tour, which is one of the things that happens when when people and churches and societies go down this road. There's this constant repentance and apology uh, uh, system that's in place. But if I'm repenting of something that I did not actually do simply because I'm a white 
uh, male, a heterosexual male, then when I get through praying that prayer, I'm still just as white, just as male, just as heterosexual as I was, and therefore under that fallen system, I'm just as guilty as I was before. So there's no there's no redemption under that system. And it boggles my mind how people who embrace the gospel can think that that kind of ideology and fallen philosophy can be helpful to understanding what's going on in the world today. You go back 25, 26 years ago, we passed a resolution repenting of the the racist underpinnings that were a part of the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I do believe that that was an appropriate thing. But for people who are gospel-centered and who believe in the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, uh, when someone has repented, it is the obligation of those who uh, feel like they were wronged or offended in some way to forgive to accept that repentance and to move forward uh, in cooperation. And one of the things that is interesting to me, and interesting in the sense of being ironic, is that when Southern Baptists have focused on moving forward on issues of trying to have a just society, dealing with the real and legitimate sin of racism that still exists uh, in our society, in our culture. When Southern Baptists were focused on just using the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God, we have made tremendous progress uh, on this one specific issue. But when uh, but when social justicians began bringing in critical race theory, intersectionality, and this woke social justice movement, there has been nothing in the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue but confusion and division. And I believe that's by design because CRT and intersectionality are not tools of unity. They're not Bible-centric. They are weapons of division. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we, when we allow these things to come in to Southern Baptist thought that, that they do what they were designed to do, and that is divide people on, on issues and along lines that are not biblically based. Another hot topic that we are facing in our present culture is the issue of complementarianism, and that's specifically within evangelicalism in particular. And while men and women are both created equal, God has created them with distinct roles and responsibilities. And as we think about those roles and responsibilities and how they're played out, we also see that it's rooted in creation. It's a creation order issue. And then we look to the church and we see that that's the way that God has also designed his church, that we see offices within the local church that are specific to men, leadership offices, like specifically the office of elder, the office of pastor is an office that God has instituted and that God has ordained and he has established a blueprint by which we are to operate and function within the life of the local church. So God has made it clear that men are to be the ones who are leading local churches. And many people are asking the question, where is the line for women as it pertains to preaching and as it pertains to serving in the office of pastor? So according to the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 6 on the church, it says the following, quote, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. So the question is this. 
should the North American Mission Board or the International Mission Board use money from the Southern Baptist Convention, the churches that make up the SBC, to plant churches that have an ecclesiology, a structure of leadership that allows for women to serve in the office of pastor? Absolutely not, and I believe there are several reasons for that. One is just the authority of Scripture itself. But secondly, even though most of us would consider complementarianism to be a secondary, uh, some would call it a, a third level or tertiary issue, and by that I mean it's not a fundamental of the faith. I believe there are people who are genuinely saved who would differ on this particular issue. Uh, Southern Baptists are not unclear about what we believe about this. Going back uh, over 20 years to the formal adoption of the the latest, most recent um amendment to the Baptist faith and message states, as you as you read a moment ago, that the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. So I don't think that our national entity should be giving money or supporting the planting of churches who, who have an ecclesiology that allows for something that's in contradiction to what we say we've come together to agree on. There's a present controversy that's being discussed, even within the SBC life itself, and the question is, should women be permitted to serve as pastor so long as she's not the senior pastor? Because in many cases, we have different structures in autonomous local Baptist churches where you might have uh, a pastor that's called a senior pastor, and then you might have another pastor that's the discipleship pastor. And so there are these different uh, structures, leadership structures. And some are suggesting that so long as she's not the senior pastor, the main preaching pastor for the church, that it's okay if she holds the office of pastor. What do you believe the Bible actually teaches about this, Mike? Uh, I do not think that's consistent with the Scripture. And as your question sort of uh, indicated, part of the problem is that we have um, titling and terminology in many of our churches, and that that is an autonomous church's right to do that but I think it, it breeds confusion. Uh, in the church where I serve as the pastor, uh, we don't use the title of pastor for any of our staff. I have a minister of music, a minister of youth. Uh, when there are ladies on our staff, uh, by our conviction and understanding of the Scripture, they are the director of preschool ministries, director of nursery ministries, things of that nature. Uh, what I would be looking at when I look at the Scripture and I seek to pastor and lead and shepherd uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church, I want to look not merely at titling, but I want to look at the actual function of that office. And the question is, are you in an authority position providing uh, spiritual leadership and oversight? Do you have authority over men? If so, I believe 1 Timothy 2 uh, would prohibit that. When you look at the requirements for either uh, the deacon or in this case the elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, the Holy Spirit and we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture, uses uh, masculine pronouns. That if a man desires this office, here's what he must be. He must be this, he must be that, he should not be this, cannot be that. And among other things, he must be the husband of one wife. And people uh, will differ maybe on how they interpret and uh, apply that phrase, the husband of one wife. But no woman could ever be the husband of one wife, regardless of whether you think that's speaking of polygamy or divorce, remarriage, whatever. Uh, so I would be looking as a pastor, and I think the Southern Baptist Convention uh, should be looking at what, what is the actual function uh, of that uh, position in the church. I do not think that a woman should be serving as an associate pastor or any other pastor 
just changing the title away from senior pastor, lead pastor, co-pastor doesn't affect or change what the Bible actually says about the role that that person would have in the local New Testament church. And uh, Josh, I was raised, as I mentioned at the outset, I was raised in a denomination that embraces uh, women serving as pastors and evangelists. And I was in a conversation with a an immediate family member of mine who was attending a church, a Pentecostal church, that had a female serving as pastor. And uh, when we got into this discussion, which is not always wise uh, in family settings, you know, around Thanksgiving turkey, uh, uh, this family member countered my position by saying, this lady is one of the most gifted Bible teachers that I've ever heard. And I said, I, I don't take any issue with that. I'm confident if you say she is, I believe that she is. And uh, the family member said, people are regularly saved under her proclamation ministry. I said, hallelujah, that's the power of the gospel. Uh, but that has nothing to do whatsoever with um, a woman serving in a role that I believe is clearly and explicitly forbidden uh, by a proper understanding of the scripture. So that's not to say that women can't be gifted teachers and that when they function even uh, in what I think is an unbiblical role, uh, the Word of God does what it does, and the gospel does what it does. It is the power of God unto salvation. We certainly have even seen people be saved under the preaching ministry of folks that are lost. So this is not to impugn the giftedness of a woman, but it just deals with the role assignment uh, that is clearly delineated in Scripture. There are several other candidates, Mike, who are running for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention this year. When we look historically at the SBC, we see that the overwhelming majority of the time, a pastor is elected as the president of the SBC. And that's because of the reality that within the political structure of the SBC, there are both indirect and direct appointments that affect various different entities that make up this convention. So the question would be this, do you see any conflict of interest in an entity head of the SBC running for the office of the president of the SBC, where he would hold both offices simultaneously. I absolutely do. And um, I remember reading in Baptist Press a couple of months ago, I guess, where that question was uh, presented to Dr. Moeller, who, by the way, I think God has used in a tremendous way. I count him as a brother in the Lord, and I'm thankful for how the Lord has used him uh, for over a quarter century now, leading the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But the the office of the president of the SBC has an indirect but a very real influence over who will eventually sit on the board of trustees. And that, that influence uh, over those boards is not only for the other boards. In Dr. Moeller's case, it's not only influence over who would sit on the board at Southeastern, Southwestern, Guidestone, Lifeway, etc., but on his own board. And uh, I think that that is the very definition of a conflict of interest. And quite frankly, uh, when this first came to my attention over 20 years ago, uh, when another seminary president was, was running for SBC president, I was surprised that that situation was not actually prohibited by the governing documents uh, of the SBC. I, I think that uh, that it should be, or if it's not explicitly prohibited, the messenger should sort of self-police on that issue because it's just not very wise. Uh, when when Dr. Moeller was asked that question in Baptist Press, 
He stated there was not a conflict of interest, and I certainly uh, understand that's his perspective. But he cited some historical examples of other entity heads in SBC history who have simultaneously served as president of the convention. And as I read that, Josh, I just thought all that means is that this would not be unprecedented. Uh, But it does not mean that it would not be unwise. I think that it is very unwise uh, for several reasons. And as I've already mentioned, the SBC president has indirect influence over who would sit on his own board. That's an obvious conflict of interest. I also think that it's a, it's a conflict of interest of sorts because you you have in the case of an entity head, somebody who already has power, authority, and influence in the SBC. And I think it's a step in the wrong direction to consolidate even more authority, power, and influence in the hands of any entity head that already has such a great deal of it. I think it's just a good time to share uh, the platform of leadership. And But Josh, this question also hits on something that I think is really indicative of a broader problem we have in the SBC right now, and that is that uh, entity heads uh, in today's Southern Baptist Convention already have, I think, an undue level of, of influence over what goes on in the SBC. So if there was ever a time that, that there was wisdom in having an entity head serve as convention president, I don't think it's 2021. And the last thing that I would mention is that that's, that's not a character statement against anybody. That's an organizational statement. I was sharing with somebody recently that uh, my wife is the greatest Christian that I know. Uh, not just the godliest woman. She's the greatest and most faithful Christian that I know. But my wife doesn't have any business serving on my church's personnel committee. And that's not because I think that she lacks integrity or would seek to be unethical. Uh, Number one, it doesn't look good. And number two, it isn't good because she cannot serve in that position without a level of bias. So making statements about conflicts of interest are not statements about character or ethics. It's really an organizational statement. And uh, for those reasons, I do believe there's a strong conflict of interest with an entity head simultaneously serving as SBC president. Mike, one of the issues within the life of the SBC and as far as the members and messengers of the SBC is concerned is the issue of transparency and trust of leadership. Mm-hmm. So as we think about that, how will you address this issue and how will your leadership gain the trust and the respect of the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, one thing I think we need to do is to seek to have leadership that doesn't all come out of the same relational and institutional stream. Uh, When you have, as in the case of the SBC, um, again, not a character attack, just a fact, you have a tremendous uh, line of leadership coming out of Southern Seminary. And many of these individuals served on staff together, went to church together. Uh, They've certainly worked together and all come out of that same particular uh, pool of SBC life. And whenever you have that, uh, you have a diminished ability to see uh, issues in an unbiased way. So I think that that's a challenge. doesn't mean anyone has done anything wrong. I never want to uh, in any way disparage someone because or, or an entity because they produce a lot of great leaders. But it is, uh, it is an additional barrier to the transparency issue. I also think that if you look at the nominating committee report, we have got to get to a situation where our entity heads have absolutely no influence or involvement in recommending or selecting who their trustees would be. If you know uh, who people's friends are, uh, where their buddies serve on particular church staffs, then you can see that 
there is there is a setup almost from the beginning where uh, a board of trustees uh, is populated by people who are close friends and associates with the entity head or maybe a close family member. And again, that just that just doesn't lend itself to having a high level of accountability. Josh, we also have a structural problem because most boards meet one or two times a year. And they kind of blow into town on a Monday afternoon, have a Monday night meeting, maybe all day Tuesday meetings, and they they unanimously agree to things that if you interview the average trustee, by and large, they, they do not have a great level of detail and information about what it was they just approved. We have a lot of our entities that go into executive session. And by the way, I've been criticized when I served as chairman of the executive committee because of uh, the EC going into executive session. But the record would indicate that I was not in favor of those executive sessions. And actually, motions that came from the floor took the executive committee into those executive sessions. I'm very much in favor of um, of operating in full sunlight uh, and transparency. So the fundamental way in which that is going to be remedied is through electing a president who shares these convictions, who will appoint a committee on committees that shares these uh, convictions, who will seek to put together a committee on nominations that will share these convictions, who will appoint uh, trustee members who share these convictions that we need greater trust, greater accountability, and greater transparency. Uh, And one very specific way that I think we need to do that, especially with our larger entities that have hundreds of millions of dollars that flow through them, is from time to time to have an outside independent forensic audit of exactly what's happening with the money. Uh, Very few things would breed trust, accountability, and transparency like seeing more specifically exactly what's happening with the Southern Baptist mission dollars that flow through these entities and agencies. Mike, the final question that I have for you is simply this. As we think about making plans for this summer and the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention approaching us in Nashville, the question would be this. Why should people actually make their plans to attend the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention this June and then vote for Mike Stone as the next president? Well, Josh, I I hesitate to start with an answer that sounds pragmatic because people who know me know that theologically— I'm not a pragmatist, but pragmatism is a good thing to look at depending on what it is you're looking at. I say that simply to say the Southern Baptist Convention is in substantial decline. Our membership is in decline. The cooperative program is in decline over the last 10 to 12 years to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, as was recently uh, highlighted in the ERLC task force report. Our baptisms are at the lowest rate since 1939. Some measure of that, of course, could be that churches are uh, more attentive to and focused on uh, a regenerate church membership, and so maybe are not as flippant or quick to baptize a professing convert. But uh, that greater level of care, which I affirm, doesn't account for the precipitous decline in evangelism. I say all of that simply to say that if that's the direction you want to see the Southern Baptist Convention going, then let's keep allowing the system to perpetuate uh, leaders from inside the system. So someone who can come in from the outside, who has uh, institutional knowledge, but is that relational outsider, to come in, put a new voice, a new set of eyes uh, on these issues, to focus on just dealing with these issues, yes, in as in as as winsome and Christ-like a way as we can, but also to do it in a forthright way 
uh, I think is exactly what the Southern Baptist Convention needs. And uh, to be very candid, I think a vote for Mike Stone is a way to say uh, to pastors in churches that are numerically smaller, that are out of the mainstream, they're, they're not one of the churches that gets in the limelight all the time. It's a way of saying that every Southern Baptist matters. So bring your vote and uh, share your voice uh, this June at the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for joining us for this conversation and for this edition of the G3 Podcast. Josh, it's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. We want to point you to our website at g3men.org. There you will find resources on a weekly basis as well as archives of this very podcast. We also want to encourage you to make your plans to join us for the G3 National Conference on the theme of Christ. We will be unpacking biblical Christology for an entire weekend, and you can find out more information about registration, hotels, and also the speakers for this upcoming conference at our website. The dates are September 30th through October 2nd. We hope to see you with us this fall for the G3 conference, and also we look forward to seeing you next time on the G3 podcast. May God bless you.